Good morning, City Light. You guys ready to roll today? We're, we're getting into a brand new series uh, called The Heart of God, which actually is not new. If you're new like me, maybe it's new to you. But uh, as a church, we've been doing this for several years. And the whole idea is to take six weeks every summer to go through a book of the Bible each week to give an overview of that book. So by the end of it, we'll have gone through every book in the Bible and have a whole bunch of resources as you're reading the Bible that gives you a glimpse into that book. So you can find past messages uh, online or on the app that lead us up to this point, but that gets us all the way to Jeremiah today. And if you think of Jeremiah, Christians think of one verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. We love that verse, don't we, guys? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And whenever we hear that verse, we think of puppies and rainbows and kittens and life is going to be good. And we, we think of God just blessing our life. We think of our dreams of the perfect job and the house with the gated community and 2.5 kids and living hashtag blessed. And we just think... Life is meant to be that way, right? We use that to prop up all of our dreams and our hopes and put the arrow on us for life. And we see it all over the place. We see it on grad cards. You may have gotten some this weekend. I'm sorry if anybody's got a grad card right now. You're like, oh man, I gotta switch up my verse now. Um, we see it on laptops, the stickers that we slap onto it, or we frame this verse and we put it in our home. And we just want to think about the ways that God's going to bless us and put our plans into fruition. And if you go and you Google, you're not alone. The first verse, if you type in Jeremiah, that comes up is Jeremiah 29, 11. So we think of this, and it's not crazy that we think of this. We live in Nebraska. It's the good life, right? We want the good life. But the reality is that this verse it sits in a bigger context in a bigger story that's going on. It's instructions to a now-captured Israel that's been captured by Babylon and now is going to spend the rest of their lives living in exile. And Jeremiah chapter 29 is to a chosen people that are now in shackles being carted off to a foreign place to live the rest of their lives. And if you start to try and read through this book, you're going to find out really quick, this is the longest book in the Bible. And you're thinking, wait, wait, Psalms got 150 chapters, Isaiah's got 66 chapters. But if you actually take a word count, the book of Jeremiah has the largest word count in the Bible. And so as you're reading through it, it may be a little bit confusing as you continue to trudge through and try and find your way through it. Uh, but we're going to give an overview today that'll kind of help. And the book is named after Jeremiah, a priest that lived in Israel. And it recounts his journey as he continued to try and tell the people to turn back to God. Being a priest in Israel wasn't that bad of a gig, right? You'd get to spend time near the presence of God. You'd actually get to go about and do about temple duties. You would uh, continue to have respect and honor by the people that were around you. Not a bad gig. But when Jeremiah was about 20 years old, God called him from being a priest to being a prophet. Now, being a prophet in Israel... That's a different story at this time because a prophet was to share the message of God. And this prophet was going to share a message of God to people that just would not listen. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah gets this call and he's, he's a little bit gun shy. He says, God, I'm too young for this. Who's going to listen to me? But listen to what God says. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9. 
Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And if God had stopped there, that'd be okay. Like, okay, God, tell me what to say, right? But then he goes on to tell Jeremiah this. I have appointed you to tear down and uproot. Things are going to be a lot more negative in your ministry than positive. You're going to have a tough road ahead of you. And then at the end of it, he says, and then a little bit of building up and planting at the end. And he also calls him in chapter 16 of Jeremiah to not take a wife, to not have kids, which would have been an incredibly difficult call. It's, it's hard enough for us today in this day and age, but in that culture, all of the celebration was built around that. All of the security and foundations for life were built around that structure. So God gives him a challenging call, and it makes me wonder this. If God gave you a task like that, would you listen? Or maybe even a more important question for us to wrestle with this morning. What would give you hope in the midst of all that difficulty? As we dive into Jeremiah, we're going to find the answer to that. So Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 1 says this. Bree just read it through for us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent to Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and eunuchs and officials of Judah and Jerusalem and craftsmen and metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. And then he goes into a whole list of names, which I'm not going to give a shot. Brie already did that for us, right? Which just makes me note, are there any expecting parents in the room? You might want to grab a highlighter because it's great to choose a name that nobody can pronounce, right? <laughs> so uh, an idea, an understanding as he continues on uh, is that Jeremiah, the book, is not written chronologically. Okay, you're going to find all sorts of prophecies and different things at different points. In fact, in chapter 36, it tells us that Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch, actually God called him to take all the messages that Jeremiah had just preached for 20 years and compile them into this book. And so it's not written chronologically. And chapter 44 is actually the last prophecy. So it's kind of split up into three different sections. The first half of this whole book is a warning to Israel. They're calling Israel out for the sin, for the rejection of God that they continue to do. That runs all the way up to about chapter 24. And then the middle of the book, chapter 25 to 39, continues to just share this doom and gloom that is coming for Jerusalem, that God is going to send his people into exile, and he tells them what's going to happen. And then the last half, or the last section of this book, up to 52, turns the warning to all the other nations around Israel, all the other bordering countries that were living the exact same way in rejection against God. And what would happen to them as God would use Babylon to come and pour out his justice. But then at the very end, he also speaks to Babylon as well, saying that they too would eventually be turned over to their uh, destruction as well. So the backstory here is that Israel had wanted a king. They wanted somebody other than God to lead them. So God grants them a king. They have Saul and then David and Solomon. Somewhere after Solomon the people continue to uh, divide and, um, and their desire for security, for a bigger military, for wealth based on a king starts to turn them on their head upside down because they want to be just like every other country around them. They don't want to follow God. 
In 722, Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. By that time, they divided into two kingdoms. So the southern kingdom's left, and Jeremiah is speaking predominantly to the southern kingdom. Spending most of his time in Jerusalem. And during his time, it's going to span five kings. Two of them are unnamed and unimpressive, which tells you a little bit about the state that Israel's in. But remember what God's call was to his people. That they would keep his covenant. That they'd be a covenant-keeping people. That they'd be set apart. That they'd look different than the rest of the world around them. That they'd be holy. And yet, they're not. They were supposed to be this giant arrow that was pointing to God. When God looked at, when other people looked at them, it would reflect their view back to this holy God. Yet they've turned their backs on God. They've blended right into the world around them. They decided to do whatever their hearts desired, which is not new in history, is it? We see that in the very first page of the Bible when Adam and Eve decided they'd be a better God than God. They choose to just follow their own heart's desires. We see it in this room right now. When we desire to live our way rather than God's way, thinking that we know what's best. Actually, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 comes to the point of where all the people were sitting. He says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold, that can hold no water. In the ancient times, there were three different ways that you could go and you could get water. You didn't go and turn on the faucet, right? That wasn't one of the options, which is hard for us to even imagine. But what you could do is you could wait for the rain to rain and build cisterns. And you could collect this water in these cisterns. But the problem was this. That's stagnant water. So times that sat too long, maybe there's things that could start growing in that water. And if you drank it, you'd get sick. Or your cisterns would crack. And they would continue to lose this water. Or there's another thing you could do. You could dig a well, which is a lot of work, and you're not guaranteed to actually find water, are you? If you took and looked at a satellite image of where this region is at and where these people are at, it would look like this desert there with these fingers of green that would follow a river or a small stream. So to find water in a well is going to be an extremely difficult task. Now, there's a third way that you could get water. You could find a natural spring that is continuing to give water. What a picture of God's grace. That he would provide this unending supply of water. Water, that's the key to life. And he's telling his people, you have abandoned me. He continues to give this picture of Israel as adulterous. That they've they've committed adultery. That they're walking away from the only one that's the source of, of, of life. Instead, they've dug, their own, they've dug their own cisterns, which will hold water as good as a screen door. Why do they continue to chase these things that cannot satisfy, that won't quench their thirst? Instead, they turn to idols. Eugene Peterson says, idolatry is reducing God to a concept or an object. An idol is anything that we put in God's place. I wonder if there's any idols even that we hold on to in our lives right now. Instead of letting God take the reins and take control. And chapter 7 in Jeremiah gives us this poignant picture of the whole story broken down. There's this picture of Israel going to the temple and worshiping God. While exactly at the same time, they're outside the temple worshiping these other gods. In fact, they have started to form so much like the other nations around them that they've adopted their gods and their practices. To the point where they were taking their very own children 
and offering them as sacrifices to these false gods. What a picture that Israel has boiled down to. When God's given his commands of what he asks them to do or not to do, it's not that he's some kind of cosmic killjoy, just wanting to ruin everybody's fun. It's because he knows best. He has a bigger picture. There's a story of a father that was telling his son, he was out in the uh, driveway and he's working on his car. He said, now listen, son, if you want, you can go play in the side yard right here. There's all sorts of things you can do here. If you want to go play there, you can play there. You can play in the front yard. If you want, you can play in the driveway here with me. You can go to the other side of the house. You can play there. You go to the back. You can jump on the trampoline. You go all these things. Here's all the things you could do. The only thing I don't want you to do is going in the street. Crystal clear, lays it all out. The kid's about three years old, four years old. When he's done, he says, okay, you can go play now. Guess where that kid went? Ran straight to the street and turned around and smiled at his dad. Isn't that so much like us? God lays out the whole map for us, his whole plan. And yet our rejection and our selfishness and our continued uh, sin drives us to the complete opposite. We don't want to follow God. What's blowing my mind through this book is that Israel's one repentant conversation away from forgiveness and restoration. But they're crossing their arms and digging their feet in and trying to do it their own way. For 300 years, Assyria had been this powerhouse, but their power was waning. Egypt knew it. They tried to prop them up, but there was another power that was forming in the world at that time. It was Babylon from the north. In 586, Babylon destroys the walled city of Judah, Jerusalem, and destroys the temple. This is the picture that Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 sits in. So maybe to help us understand this just a little bit more, it'd be helpful to think of it in this term. Imagine we're at church, we're in a gathering just like this, Austin's up talking, and we start to hear this rumbling coming down O Street. We start to get louder and louder, and we see there's tanks all of a sudden, through the doors, busting this foreign army. It's chaos. Austin says, you'll never take me alive, right? <laughs> Naomi just got done with this song, and so she's up here and turns this mic stand into a bow staff somehow. She's whipping out all these ninja moves. It's crazy. But they start coming through the ceiling, down on ropes, and they say resistance is futile. And before we know it, we're uh, captured by a foreign army heading up north to spend the rest of our lives in Canada right? If, the, if there's any Canadians in here, I'm sorry, right? Okay. No, this was worse than Canada. This was Babylon. This would be like spending the rest of our lives in Iowa, okay? This is, this is going to be really rough. But it's at that point that he's then speaking to us in what his plans are. Now, at this day and age, there's uh, three things they could have done. They could have resisted and you've been chopped into tiny pieces, you and your family, which isn't a great option, right? Or two, you could have resisted and been thrown into a giant fireplace, which also is not a great option. Or three, you could have resisted and been thrown into a den of hungry lions. So they're continuing to follow. Now carted off to Babylon in chains, looking back, seeing their home on fire, their families destroyed, being taken captive for the rest of their life. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8, speaks to it by saying this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. 
Another translation says, dreams that they encourage you to have. For it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What's going on here? In chapter 28, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, just one chapter before this, there's a false prophet, Hananiah. And after they're taken captive, he's saying, hey guys, you know what? Don't unpack your bags. Keep sleeping in your clothes. We're going to be here for two years and then God's going to break this whole uh, yoke of Babylon. We're going to be back doing things the way we want to do it. We're going home. We can get back to the lives we all loved and wanted the way we did things our very own way. It seems hopeless. So he gives them this as hope. Now, if foreign nations in that day, they could do a couple different things to try and take out another nation. One of the things is they could destroy them. So they could try and kill everybody. But inevitably, somebody would escape. They'd come back and they'd come back and wage war at some point. Or they could try to just make them their slaves, but they would continue to grow in that country as slaves and at some point become a threat, much like what we saw Israel being thought of as a threat from Egypt before. Or they could just try to assimilate them to get them to blend into the culture, to become like them, to get them to marry the fellow other Babylonians, to get them to start learning the language. They would change their names, give them a Babylonian education, much like we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even giving them a Babylonian diet. Why? So that they would form in the culture so much they would be absorbed by it. But here's the problem. As Christians in this world, if we're absorbed so much by the culture, there's no way we can be this giant arrow that points to God, can we? You can't impact a culture in any way when you act just like the culture, when you blend right in. And so God has a plan for them. Hananiah, in the midst of this hopelessness, says, hey, here's what I think God's plan should be. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 1 says this. In that same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month, the fourth year, Hananiah, son of Azur, prophet of Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord and in the presence of priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring it back to this place. All the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried into Babylon, I will bring back into this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, and king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah had been bringing this yoke, like something that would be found on two oxen as they were yoked together, to give a picture of what God was about to do, that they were going to be yoked together with Babylon. They are going to be captured by Babylon. So Hananiah says, hey, you know what? God's going to break that. We're going to be freed in two years. Now, the problem with this is, In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8 through 12, God has already spoken through Jeremiah and told them, you're going to be captured by Babylon and you're going to spend 70 years there. A picture of a generation. The rest of your lives will be spent there. But Hananiah has his own plans. He wants to do things his own way. Chapter 28, verse 10, the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. So he continues to cast this vision of the way he wants things to happen. Look what happens in verse 15, chapter 28. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen to Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. 
You have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have utter rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Now, how would you know if a prophet was a prophet in this day and age? If what they said came true. Hananiah is just casting out his hopes and dreams of what he wants things to be. But Jeremiah continues to speak the truth of what God's asked him to say. And you see a complete parallel in this story. So there's different ways that they could have responded now in exile. What are they going to do? There's different ways that we can respond. Living here in the States or living where God puts us as Christians, isn't there? We can assimilate right into the culture, become just like them, no difference. Or we can take a posture of fortification. We can try and circle the wagons and just spend time with the Christian community and never go outside of that. We can spend time with a posture of domination. We're just going to try and force people into following Jesus. But God actually has a fourth posture that he calls us to and that he calls the Israelites to. And that's saturation. To go to and live among and live in a different way, but live among the people in a different way, so much so that it continues to point to Jesus. So Jeremiah now, chapter 29, verse 4, starts to show us this posture. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did you catch what it just said there of who sent them into exile? It says that God sent them into exile. But didn't verse 1 Tell us that Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile. Who was it? Was it God? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? In fact, verse 7 again says it was God that had taken them into exile. It reminds me of this. I'll give you a couple reminders through the rest of this message. One is God's plans won't be stopped. God's plans won't be stopped. It's God that's working out a plan for his people. Why? Because he longs to capture their heart. God has sent them into exile to wake them up, to show them their need for him, to get them to turn back to him. And God is in complete control. He even uses this foreign nation to come in and act out his justice. And what's so interesting is there's another word that's in here. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. It literally means the God of angel armies. You see it all over the book of Jeremiah. This God is so powerful. He could have come in with his own armies and taken over. But he actually works through another nation. Why? Because he wants his people to turn back to him. But he also wants to impact Babylon. And he gives them a chance. He goes on uh, in verse 15 to tell, or in chapter 50 and 51, to give a message to Babylon after the 70 years is done. He tells them to give them, that he's going to give them over to their own destruction. But he wants to reach them. Verse 5 in Jeremiah chapter 29 goes on to say this. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. Can tell them to move in, settle in, and start to make an impact in that area. We can often live in a place waiting for the next place, can't we? We can waste the time and opportunity that God has for us right where we're at because we're always thinking about where we're going to be. I remember when we first moved back to Nebraska, we lived in this tiny little duplex and we had boxes all over the place because we're still trying to sell our place out in Colorado. 
I remember for a long time, we just kind of felt like we were living in limbo. Like we didn't want to unpack boxes in case it sold. So then we could, didn't have to repack the boxes and move again. And it was kind of this always down the road, we were going to do this thing. And it just didn't feel like home. I remember hearing somebody else talk about the same situation that they were in. They didn't hang up pictures and they didn't settle in because they just felt like they were going to go move somewhere else. Until finally the husband said, let's just put some holes in the wall. Let's put the pictures up. Let's settle in because we want to impact this place. God tells him, hey, you're going to be here a while. So settle in. Don't become like those pe- the people of Babylon, but settle in. Plant gardens. Marry. Multiply. Increase. Don't decrease. What he's telling them is to build, to plant, to grow. And then what's he say? He goes on in verse 7, says this. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Did you hear that? Seek the welfare. Or your translation may say peace and prosperity of the city. It's a Hebrew word, shalom. And it means more than just peace. It means more than just like a ceasefire, a lack of fighting. Shalom means a completeness, a fullness, a wholeness. Someone said it this way. Shalom means that there's nothing missing and nothing broken. It's a wholeness in this place. It reminds me of this, that God's purposes are bigger than our purposes. Their purposes could have been like, hey, let's just wait it out and get back to what we want. But God has a bigger purpose that he's doing. He's saying, no, you're going to impact the people in the place that I have called you into exile. Not only are you going to impact, you're going to seek their welfare. And look what he says at the end. He says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Can you imagine how difficult this would be? Imagine someone that's just been captured in war from Ukraine, moved to Russia right now, living there. And God's saying, hey, I want you to pray for their, on their behalf. I want you to seek their welfare. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? That's the exact same situation that children of Israel find themselves in right now. Pray. There's a tension. Psalms 137 shows the tension they're wrestling with in their souls. It says, how can we sing the Lord songs in a foreign land? How do we settle in? How do we actually turn our prayers from these lazy prayers, from these selfish prayers, these these shallow prayers, to actually praying for the prayers that God would give us to pray. Tozer said this, prayer will be effective when it no longer is used as a substitute for obedience. What if the prayers that I'm praying, God wanted to use me as a part of the answering? What if he wants you and to use your life to impact the people that are around you, the people that you're praying for? He actually wants to use you in the process of that. Those are hard prayers. Reminds me of this, that God's prayers are not always our prayers. God's prayers are bigger prayers. Psalms uh, 37 verse 4 tells us to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When I was younger, I thought, oh, that's amazing. All I have to do is delight myself in God and then I can ask whatever I want. He's going to give me my desires. I remember my brother talking to me. He's like, no, 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 Josh, you're getting it wrong. Delight yourself in the Lord and he's going to put his desires in your heart. He's going to transform the way you think, the way you care, the way you see other people. So the Israelites are hit with a crossroads once again. Is it going to be their desires or God's desires? Their ways or God's ways? We're all hit with the same decision every day in our life. I wonder, 
what it would look like to seek the flourishing in your job or in your school, in your neighborhood, in this city, with God's desires guiding your life? Will it be your life to benefit me or my life to benefit you? He tells us in verse 7, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In essence, you live in the culture you help create. You live in the spot that you are impacting. So impact it. God's desire is to work through your voice, through your hands, through your feet, to impact the place where he's put you. He's planted you there on purpose. Acts 17 tells us this. It says that he purposed the places that you would live. Why? So that you'd seek him and find him. So that you'd join with him in relationship with him as he brings about restoration in this world. That's the reason why when we get saved, we don't just get zapped into heaven with Jesus. Why? Because he has a purpose for you and a plan for you here to join with him in the restoration that he's, he's bringing about. And he's shaped each one of us uniquely for this. And it happens in the everyday spheres of life. It happens through the spiritual gifts that he's empowered. It happens through your heart, through your abilities. It happens through your personality, through your experience. God uses all of that in his mission. In fact, there was somebody that was using his personality, the way he was shaped, his gifts, his abilities in his job, and it was impacting people both there and all over the world. It was maybe a person that you would never think of, but it was a shuttle bus driver at the airport. Ortberg actually talks about this in his book. He says this, Not long ago, I boarded an airport shuttle bus to get to the rental car lot. Driving the bus is usually a thankless job, for the driver is often regarded as the low man on the totem pole. People on the bus are often grumpy from travel and in a hurry to get to their car. No one says much except the name of their rental car company, but not on this bus. The man who drove this bus was an absolute delight. He was scanning the curbside, looking for anyone who needed a ride. You know, he told us, I'm always looking because sometimes people are running late. You can tell it in their eyes. I'm always looking because I never want to miss one. Hey, there's another one. Driver pulled over to pick up a latecomer. He was so excited about what he was doing that we all got excited. We were actually cheering him on as he was picking people up. It was like watching Jesus drive a shuttle bus. The man would grab people's luggage before they could lift it, and then he would jump back on the bus and say, we're off. I know you're eager to get where you want to go, so I'm going to get you as quickly as possible. I'm going to get you there as soon as I can. Jaded commuters put down their papers. He created such a little community of joy on that bus that people wanted to ride around the terminal a second time <laughs> just to get to hang out with this guy. He'd say the people who got on after, we'd say the people who got on after us, watch this guy. He wasn't just our shuttle bus driver. He was our leader. He was our friend. And for a few moments, community flourished. What would it look like for God to bring about flourishing in your community using you and your gifts, your wiring, your personality, even some of the experiences you've had? Because God's plans are bigger than our plans. He can even use your difficult experiences for the kingdom. Wearsby said it this way, what life does to us depends largely on what life finds in us. If we seek the Lord and, what he, and want his best, then circumstances will build us up and prepare us for what he's planned. If we rebel or if we look for quick, easy shortcuts, then circumstances will rob us of the future that God wants us to enjoy. Jeremiah 29, 11 will come, but not for 70 years for the people of Israel. First, God has a plan. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 goes on to say this. For the Lord said, 
When 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I have sent you into exile. The book of Jeremiah shows us this. It shows us a father that loves his children, that disciplines his children to get them to turn back to him and to his ways. It's a dad that knows more than us and cares about us and wants us to obey and to follow him. It points to a day when he would forgive all of our sins. It shows that he loves the bad kids in the story, even the Babylonians. In fact, all of us have rejected God. The Israelites were not exempt at all. A scholar once said, Israel has not been rejected. Uh, Israel has not been rejected as God's people, but rather have been called to reconsider their place in God's economy in light of new circumstances. The last thing, I want you to remember from this is that God's path is the only path. God's heart was to turn his people's heart back to him, to follow him. And there's a glimmer of hope, a glimpse of God's bigger plan. In the very middle of this book, in chapter 31, he gives a few verses to highlight the future that's yet to come. Chapter 31, verse one, uh, 31, verse 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, with the house of Israel and Judah. Verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There is hope coming, but it's not the way that they're expecting in the way that they want it to play out but it's a bigger hope. God would at some point send his son to exile, to live here among us, a perfect sinless life and die on the cross to rescue us from our sin and rebellion. And just before he did that, he met with his disciples in the upper room, Luke chapter 22, and he said, he took the bread and when he gave them thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. And then and reminiscent of Jeremiah 31, he says this, and likewise, he took a cup after eating and said, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. The son would actually come and give his life as a sacrifice for us to call us out of our rebellion, to win our hearts. And as Christians in Philippians 3.20, it tells us that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. We're just exiles here. But God has a job for us to do. It doesn't matter what your birth certificate says or your passport. God's placed you in this place for a purpose. At the very last chapter, chapter 52, King Jehoiakim gets called back to King Nebuchadnezzar. There's this interesting, odd little poem, and it tells us that he gets rid of his prison clothes and he dines at the king's table. It's a glimpse as this future hope that would yet to come. God has given us that through his son. The book of Jeremiah shows us God's heart. It shows us his sorrow. It shows us his patience and his promises. And the thing that he's after most of all 
is your heart.